Reading from Acts 18 and part of 19. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. It had happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began to speak in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve of them in all. And he entered the synagogue for three months, spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. The word of the Lord. Chapter 19 of the book of Acts marks the beginning of Paul's third missionary journey, which is a bit of a misnomer. It's a bit, um, it's not, doesn't necessarily give the reader the right idea in the sense that Paul's third missionary journey is, as you can even see in our passage, uh, spent the, the vast majority of the time in Ephesus, where Paul sets up shop almost for three years and is committed to establishing a very strong church, a strong community of God there. Now, whenever we uh, dip into a passage like this, where we have uh, a conversion and the Spirit coming and speaking in tongues, it's my experience that people's attention tends to be drawn to that and figuring that out, and that's not what I would like to draw our attention to this morning. So, in an effort to try to remove some of that out of our path, let me say just two things. Number one, here you see in the book of Acts, or in chapter 19, as Paul comes to Ephesus, people convert. What happens? He baptizes them, then he lays his hands on them, then the Spirit comes. Now, in the book of Acts, sometimes the Spirit shows up before baptism, sometimes the Spirit shows up at baptism, and sometimes the Spirit shows up after baptism. So it is very difficult to come to any kind of uh, systematic declaration of how that functions in the book of Acts. 
and perhaps is a bit of a warning to us not to be too, too dogmatic because it doesn't happen in a routine fashion in the book of Acts. Secondly, uh, the speaking in tongues, right? Again, this is the last occasion of speaking in tongues in the book of Acts. Now, speaking in tongues in the book of Acts usually happens under one of two conditions. Number one, the gospel has gone for the first time to an area that it's never been to before. And this is um, either could be a way of making communication easier among some of the people or as a sign of the arrival of the gospel for the first time. Or two, it's, uh, it's distributed in a, a kind of an affirmation of apostolic authority. So this is the, really the one time in Acts where the uh, tongues happens under Paul's authority. And uh, part of the gist is certainly to give Paul the same kind of apostolic stature as Peter or John or James would have uh, early in the book. So you can take that. We can talk about it more later uh, if you want to come see me or I grab coffee this week. But that I don't think is really what is on Luke's mind in the midst of these two stories. I think what is on Luke's mind is the one common denominator between the two stories. And did you pick it up as we went through? There's one thing that's true to both stories, and it's actually pretty fascinating and shows us a, an unexpected and hard-to-see historical reality in the midst of what's going on in the book of Acts. And you can see them in 1825, right, where Apollos has come to Ephesus, and he speaks eloquently, and in 25 it says, He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only what? The baptism of John. He doesn't know the baptism of Jesus. He doesn't know about the Holy Spirit. And also in verse 9, uh, or in chapter 19, verse 3, Paul arrives at Ephesus after Apollos has already gone on to Achaia. And really, when it says Achaia, Achaia is the region, but where Apollos was headed uh, and where he, he does pr a pretty astounding ministry is in Corinth. Right? But in 19.3, it says, uh, and he said, into what were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. The common denominator between the two, what catches our attention in terms of them being similar is that both Apollos and uh, the disciples in Ephesus only know the baptism of John. Apollos seems to be more informed. He knows something about the life of Jesus and is teaching accurately about Jesus, but he doesn't know the baptism of Jesus. So to, be, to make it kind of short, we don't, we don't know if Apollos knows about the death and resurrection of Jesus, right? because he doesn't know about the outpouring of the Spirit. And we're not even sure the disciples in Ephesus with whom Paul dialogues knows that Jesus has come, right? All they know is the baptism of John, and there's no reference to them knowing anything uh, more than that. And so uh, this is what we're going to focus on, and, and what we're going to try to see, I think, two lessons for us. It, it's, in some ways, it's a little bit off hard of a, a passage to, to preach because um, what we're going to see is happening historically is that there are people who went out and were followers of John the Baptist but hadn't yet heard the full story of Jesus. That doesn't happen very often today. Right? You don't very often bump into somebody and, and says, yeah, I'm, I'm really familiar in following John the Baptist, but I haven't heard about Jesus. So what does a passage like this have to, have to say to us? Well, I think it warns us of two things. One is uh, neglecting the work of God historically, 
right? And two is neglecting the work of God uh, personally. So first, we're going to take a historical perspective in terms of redemptive history. And second, we're going to take a personal perspective in the way in which God works in our own salvation. So first, the danger of ignoring or neglecting God's work historically. Uh, These references to the baptism of John and only knowing that are actually pretty fascinating. Uh, When we take a historical perspective, and I didn't even know this, but there's the evidence, historical evidence that goes into the fourth century that some people were only familiar with John the Baptist and were following as disciples of him. And some would not even then turn once they heard about Jesus as Messiah. They would reject him as Messiah and still follow the teaching of John the Baptist. Well, how does this all play out? We're not really sure, but if you put the historical pieces together, what must have happened is something like this. As John the Baptist is conducting his ministry, right, the cousin of Jesus is, is preaching a, uh, a baptism of repentance, right? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand and warning people to prepare for the arrival of the Messiah. Some people must have uh, been evangelistic in that message, and moved out into the Mediterranean world before Jesus showed up on the scene. Now, that may not be the case for Apollos, but it seems to be the case for the disciples in Ephesus in chapter 19. And they went and began to tell other synagogues in the Mediterranean world, listen, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. There's this guy eating locusts and wearing animal hides and, uh, and kind of odd, but he seems really passionate in Judea. And uh, this is his message, and we've come to, to bear it to you. And so the message of John the Baptist spreads. And just note, Apollos is from Alexandria, which is the famed city of intellectual uh, heights and and the academy in Egypt. And Ephesus is in Turkey. They're a long ways from each other. But both places have been informed by this baptism of John or this Baptist movement. So it had a significant impact on the Mediterranean world. without necessarily people being informed of how Jesus completed that message or how the coming of the kingdom is, is actually coming to completion in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So this is what we see in both stories. And probably Luke is, is highlighting these stories because this was pro- most likely an issue that is bigger than we see it in Scripture. In other words, this conversation probably happened in a number of synagogues in a number of places where people had been invited to follow the message of John the Baptist, but hadn't yet necessarily heard the completion of that message in the story of Jesus. And Luke is trying to clear this up uh, for those, for Theophilus, for the early church, and ultimately for us. But we have to realize that even in this picture, right, the, the, the distinction between the two baptisms, we need to be reminded that one is a baptism of, really of works, of repentance, And one is a baptism of grace. John says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, get your house in order, put your sin away, shape up, the Messiah is about to show up. It's a repentance of works or a baptism of works. And where the baptism of Jesus is a baptism of grace. Where Jesus comes and says, actually, you can never get your house in shape and you will never be prepared for the coming of the kingdom. And I come bearing God's unconditional love Right, to invite you into my household. This isn't a baptism of works. It's a baptism of grace. And so there's a tension between the two baptisms at hand and a decision both for Apollos and for the disciples in Ephesus 
which baptism they're ultimately going to gravitate toward. Now, we might think that it could, it's at least possible, we don't see this in our stories, but possible that they would say, right, and we know others said this because the Baptist movement lasted into the 4th century. Others said, you know, I like the message of John the Baptist, that baptism works, but I don't like the message of the baptism of Jesus, a baptism of grace. Right? And so they rejected this ongoing, um, you know, God, God does a slow reveal in terms of his redemptive history. Right? You, you know more anytime you put yourself down in, in the story of Scripture, and you know more historically when you locate yourself typically later. You know, if you land in the first century, you're trying to figure out whether, uh, you know, the dual nature of Jesus, if he was God and man or one or the other. If you land in the third century, you're trying to figure out the Trinity. There is a, um, a way in which the Spirit leads the church into all truth. And here, you know, Apollos and the disciples in Ephesus have this question, is, is this baptism of Jesus being led into truth, is this what God is at work in, or should I stick with the baptism of John? And I think uh, in one sense, it should always remind us that there should be, you know, fortunately, of course, because of God's sovereignty, Apollos and the elders of spirit of humility and see the truth, right? The spirit calls them into the truth as it's revealed to them. But as the church has marched on, there is, there is this un, um, increasing uh, quality of God's revelation or him and grace leading us into greater understanding of the scriptures, which should give us a spirit, spirit of humility and at least being open to that. Not necessarily uh, looking at every new idea and, being, and saying this is right, Right, but we could just take a quick survey, right? It's, we've considered the Galatian churches in Sunday school, and they have the decision, well, is it God's intent to, for us to follow the Mosaic law? Or is it God's intent for us to move into something new? Or uh, we can think of the Reformation in which the Reformers come and say, well, we know the vast majority of theologians for the first 400 years of the church emphasized one theory of the atonement, and that was Christus Victor. It's the idea that Christ was victor over Satan and had won us from Satan's possession. When the reformers come along, they say, actually, we really see a different, a, well, not a different, but another emphasis in Scripture on a different theory of atonement, which is penal substitution. And so people had to wrestle with, well, is this God leading us into increased truth, or is this uh, not a good idea? And of course, we say it's a good idea. When when Galileo, right, a believer, says, uh, I love God and I'm really good at math and I'm pretty sure we're the ones who are moving and not the sun, that the church just says, is God leading us into greater truth or is this a bad idea? Uh, when theologians begin to say, you know, I, I'm not sure a really good expression of the gospel is owning another human being and maybe we re- re- need to reconsider slavery. Right? That, another time in which the church just says, is God leading us into greater truth or is this a bad idea. Or when women were arguing for the right to vote in the 1920s. And some, you know, some churches and theologians says, no, Scripture doesn't endorse this. And others said, well, Scripture really speaks just to the, to the church, and there's no reason not to endorse this. Right? Over and over and over again throughout history, right, there's, this, there's, also, there's um, God's revelation that comes in Scripture that is weighed, and, under, and we see this process unfolding in Scripture. But then again, the spirit working through the church and leading us into greater truth. And so, uh, you know, a spirit of human, I look at Apollos and I look at the uh, Ephesian elders and I know that some people said no 
to the baptism of Jesus and that they said yes. And I think in part, at least, um, of course, it's God's sovereignty working, but we also see a spirit of humility. In fact, consider uh, Apollos in relation to Priscilla and Aquila. Now, Apollos, look at verses uh, 24 and 25 of chapter 18. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Okay? Now, the language there is, is kind of over the top. In other words, it, it is describing Apollos as being uh, a very high-level intellectual from one of the greatest academic cities in the ancient world. And he's uh, described as a really brilliant, uh, fervent uh, rhetorician, which means speaker. He's very effective. So, in essence, he's like a Harvard tenured prof. And he shows up to Ephesus, and he's used to being a very gifted speaker, and people recognize this. And he's refuting everyone. It's very difficult to hold court with him because he's so sophisticated. And here come Priscilla and Aquila. A little church couple at the church in Ephesus. And they say, Apollos, would you step over here, please? We need to have a little conversation, right? They do it in private, which was wise. But they say to Apollos, this great scholar, uh, you know, we're not sure you have it really quite all right. You don't have all the details. We need to fill some things in for you. Now, you can easily imagine, right? Think of some of your professors. And think of pulling them aside to correct them and what their attitude would have been if you had done that. Oh, really? You have something to teach me. Well, why don't you sit down and you're going to learn how great my learning is, right? But that's not at all. We see Apollos respond, right? God's spirit is upon him. He responds to the gracious invitation to hear the whole story of Jesus. But there's humility on the side of Priscilla and Aquila as well, right? Apollos is on their turf and he's a brilliant speaker. You don't think they're leaders in the church, right? If somebody came in here and started, ten, right? Imagine one of the great preachers of America retired and started attending Rockwell Press. You don't think I'd feel a little awkward every Sunday, right? But Priscilla and Aquila recognize the gifts that Apollos has and choose to say, hey, we'd like you to, to get this down a little bit better because we know how effective you're going to be for the kingdom of God. They recognize his gifts and invest in him so that he can be a blessing to the church. It's really a radical spirit of humility on both sides. And you could say the same for the, um, the elders are, uh, in Ephesus when Paul comes on the scene. Right? They hear and they respond rather than judging Paul or thinking that they have things down. There's a real, there's a real willingness, a uh, teachable spirit on their part as they hear this new truth. Which, again, we're called to discern things carefully and weigh things carefully, but I think also... Um, it's important for us in terms of God continuing to lead us into all truth to have a, a teachable spirit, to have a, a, a degree of humility. Now, that, that's the danger of ignoring God's work historically. Right? As he moves and as the spirit guides the church into truth and wisdom. But there's a danger of ignoring God's work personally. Right? And how do we see that? Well, now, both Apollos and the elders in Ephesus respond positively to the message of Jesus. But again, I've already said we know that some do not and prefer the baptism of John. And I think in part, that is always a challenge for us. That though we are called to live out of the baptism of Jesus, we are always tempted to live out of the baptism of John. 
What do I mean? One of the things we're kind of talking about and even seeing here to a degree is a phrase that became important in the Reformation, which is um, the church reformed, always reforming. Now, sometimes people hear that and they think, oh, well, the church is always coming up with new ideas and changing. And that, that's not what it means. Um, it's not how it was used at the time. Right? And again, we, I think we have to be open to where the Spirit leads. But it's not that we're always captivated by every new idea. What the Reformers meant was um, they had a real concern for what they, the Puritans called formalism. Now, we don't use that word very much anymore. But what the Puritans meant by formalism was, and remember, they're responding to the corruption that they saw in Rome. Uh, what they meant by formalism was you can go through all the motions of being a Christian and your heart can be very hard. In other words, you can go to church. Uh, you can participate in the sacraments. You can study God's word. But it can all be kind of an outward uh, pretending in which your heart actually doesn't become flesh. It, becomes, it remains very hard. And that's what they called formalism. And for the church to be reformed and always reforming, what they meant was we're always repenting of formalism and moving to, towards more sincerely following Jesus. Right? Another way you could put that is we're always repenting of gravitating to the baptism of John and moving again towards the baptism of Jesus, moving away from works and toward grace. Because right? isn't there always a temptation to say, you know, I kind of like John's baptism. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Well, I've repented of most sin. In fact, as I look at my neighbors, I'm incredibly righteous. My family's much more put together. I'm not engaged in any gross sin. I'm doing quite well. Therefore, I expect significant blessing from God. I think I stand pretty well on John's baptism. And if uh, Jesus' baptism is all grace, well, that means that he's given everything to me and I owe him everything because I haven't contributed anything. And if that's true, then he kind of owns me and he can do whatever he wants, and then he may call me into suffering as part of growing in him. And I don't, I'm not really keen on the whole suffering bit. I really like the reward of the baptism of works, right? I'm doing pretty good. You know, on any sliding scale, even if you apply the bell curve, I'm in good shape, right? And so we, 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 there's part of us that gravitates because of our arrogance and our presumption, because of our eagerness to judge everyone around us. There's an eagerness to drift towards John's baptism, rather than a baptism of grace, in which we have to say, oh, I couldn't possibly offer anything through this economy of salvation. I needed God himself to become man and to be torn apart and for his blood to be shed so that I could be redeemed. And that's how much he loves me. And yes, it does mean that he owns me. And as a result of that, I am in the best shape possible when I simply see myself as his bondservant. That's just a bit scarier message. It's a much higher calling, um, but it's also the only way that actually gives life. As an example of what I'm talking about, we could consider Dave Yawk. Uh, Dave uh, is um, born into a famous Christian family. His great-grandfather was Louis Talbot, who was one of the founders of the Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. And so you can imagine that he is born to a significant pedigree, of Christian scholarship and Christian influence on the American scene. And his family took Christianity seriously in a formalist sort of way, in a baptism of John sort of way. And he grew up in that kind of Christianity, and he came to despise it. It, uh, it wore him down to the nub. He writes, I witnessed person after person trying to somehow work back to God through good deeds 
and moral effort. And he said he found it both exhausting on a personal level, because you're always trying to say, have I done enough? But he also said it corrupted his family because all you can do is have contempt for other people. When you see someone outperforming you in righteousness, you can only feel jealousy or envy, right, if it's all an economy of what you achieve. If it's a repentance of works, John's baptism, then it's all up to you. And if people are outperforming you, that means condemnation for you. So you had better get busy about striking them down or undermining their righteousness. And of course, we see this in the church all the time, right? You get mad at somebody when they display some righteousness or somebody gets some blessing and you think they must be doing better than I am. And we get angry and judge and try to cut them down, right? And if you, it's even easier to see at the kid level because they're less sophisticated at it. Not that it's happening less as we grow up necessarily. And this is happening for Dave. So as he enters his teenage years, you can imagine the anger that has built up within him and the, uh, the feelings of inadequacy and how does one navigate the world. And so he goes through different phases, pornography, huge anger. He starts to date and starts to abuse his girlfriends. He can't believe that this is true of himself, right? He's been raised on a, this works framework. And so if I'm this bad, that means I have no standing with God and enters a significant depression in which he considers suicide. In the midst of this, he's drawn to one idea, uh, and that is love. He doesn't feel like he's really experienced love. He doesn't feel like he knows love, but he's enamored by the idea of love. So he tries to read everything that he can on the subject of love. And he wrestles with the question, is it possible to be loved perfectly? Is there such a thing? This is almost to an obsessive degree. This is the question that besets him. And through his reading, he, he marks two things that stood out to him as, as God began to reach out to him. And first was this, a quote by C.S. Lewis. It says, if I find my, in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And so Dave says, well, inside I have this insatiable, insatiable desire to know what it means to be loved. And I don't feel like I've experienced that. Therefore, I, I don't, and he says to himself, I don't think I would experience this. I don't think I would make it up because it's too crushing to desire this and not be able to experience it. I can't think of a reason that I would create this for myself. So I, I buy into Lewis's statement that this is an indication to me that I must be created for something bigger. Right? Otherwise, I would just be punishing myself and would just stop. But I can't stop. I desperately want to be loved and to know what that is and to love others in a more real way, so I must be created for a different world. And then he comes to Second John, um, sorry, John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this to lay uh, one down one's life for his friends. And Dave begins to realize, oh, this is what a baptism of grace is. Jesus knows everything about me. He knows all of the sins I've engaged in. He knows that I've been abusive towards women and yet he's died on my behalf. He's loved me to the extent that he would invite me into his family, even as I am. This is what true love is, that one would die not only for his friends, but that one would die for his, his enemies. And so Dave, Dave begins to experience grace. He goes and he, he gets married, and his marriage is going well, and he enters ministry and does some music and then plants a church. And amazingly, everything is, is really going uh, quite well until uh, he finds himself moving back towards the baptism of John. He summarizes uh, this, what happened to him, by quoting Proverbs 27, 21. 
The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold, but a man is tested by his praise. What happened to him? He began to believe all the accolades. He began to think, yes, I am really worthy. Right? I've been proven by the works that I have done. And again, he moves back to the standing before God, which is based on his own righteousness and what he's doing, rather than by God's grace in Christ. And then everything starts to crumble. Right? You can't love your wife well right, out of a baptism of John. And you can't serve your church well out of a baptism of John. So things fall apart for him. And he finds himself right back in the depression and uh, substance abuse until right, God in his grace kind of reaches out to him and he moves back towards that baptism of Jesus. And we're all doing this to some extent, right? Moving back toward works, finding ourselves at a loss because things aren't working and we find ourselves frustrated and demonstrating the works of the flesh and then coming back to the grace of Christ and demonstrating the fruits of the Spirit. This is how Dave describes it. More and more, I came to understand why I needed Jesus' love. It was one thing to receive the perfect love that every human being desires. It was quite another to know he had offered this perfect love while I was still a wretched sinner. When I contemplated the weight of the horror my sin had caused, it drove me to a deeper humility. The more I understood my status as a beloved son of God, bought by the precious blood of Jesus, the more I learned to welcome the Holy Spirit into my life as my comforter, Counselor, convictor, and confidant. It was the understanding that he's loved right, prior to anything and despite anything that he has done, that out of that, right, he had the freedom to actually rely on the Spirit to cultivate real righteousness in his life. And there's that note of humility, right, which we've already stressed between Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila and the uh, elders in Ephesus and Paul. And uh, indeed, Dave goes on to say, if the church is indeed the bride of Christ, then I can only learn how to love and cherish my wife by observing all the wonderful ways in which my Savior loves his. And it's by being knitted together in community and having that spirit of humility that we can be joyously surprised by how the Spirit works in one another, celebrate it, and then be ministered to by it rather than have to judge it or condemn it because it threatens our own righteousness. So as we consider this, right, the baptism of John that characterized Apollos, the baptism of John that characterized the elders of Ephesus, two warnings. Let's not ignore the work of God historically, but have a spirit of humility to see where he leads his church. And let's not ignore and neglect the work of God personally, where we would move back to a baptism of John, a baptism of works, and think that we can forge our own repentance and preparation for the kingdom of God, but let us throw ourselves on the mercy of Christ and say we are delighted at the coming of your kingdom. We can't possibly be ready unless you, the king, make us ready. And he does so as we come to his table this morning. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, you are king, and we praise you this morning. And we ask that you would, uh, would need our hearts. Uh, we are so eager to affirm our own confidence and our own self-sufficiency and our own importance. And we pray that you would forgive us. We pray that you would help us to prepare our hearts as we come to this table and to repent of any reliance upon a repentance of works and instead to rely upon the baptism of grace. Let us again know what it means to be baptized into the blood of Christ and to be cleansed from all unrighteousness, to know your love, which is not dependent upon what we have achieved, but 
It's dependent solely on your grace. And as we cast ourselves upon your mercy and your grace, may your spirit come and equip us to, uh, to produce uh, great fruits of righteousness to your glory and to our good. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.